Little Nightmares is a series that celebrates the grotesque, macabre, and obscure. Much like American Horror Story, anything from Guillermo del Toro or all of TikTok. I really enjoy it to be honest. I understand why some may not enjoy the vague storytelling or tale spinners who leave much up to the imagination, but I find it captivating. I personally love it when a storyteller doesn't spoon feed me everything, when elements of the story or of the character's motivations are left up to my imagination or deduction. But there are cases where this doesn't work though. There is a real danger with this storytelling tactic specifically that it allows the author of the story to get away with not explaining things at all. Not because it's best to leave it up to the audience, but because they never had an explanation to begin with. They just made stuff up and then left it with no explanation, no justification, just left it. The worst offender to demonstrate when this type of storytelling that we see in Little Nightmares can go wrong would have to be Lost the TV show from back in like 2005. Lost is a pretty straightforward show. It's about a bunch of people that were on a plane that crashed on some sort of stranded, bizarre island that features a bunch of really mysterious things. After waiting for rescue for a few days, they realize it's not coming and they have to try and make some sort of life for themselves on this island, at which point they begin pushing in only to discover more mysterious things that make it very clear this island is not what it initially appeared to be. I guess be warned of spoilers if you're concerned about spoilers for a 15-year-old TV show. Jesus, 15 years old. Okay, now I feel old. This whole video is going to be slightly depressing because now I... I feel ancient. Some examples of some of the things that this TV show established that don't have any justification behind them at all would be something like the smoke monster. Early on in season one, we see that there's some sort of gigantic monster made of black smoke that inhabits this island and attacks the innocent. Nobody knows what it is, but surely there must be some explanation as to how it got here, why it's still here, and what it is. Or another example being the Dharma Initiative, a group of scientists and educated people that are housed on this island performing all sorts of experiments. Or the plethora ancient Egyptian-like ruins that are scattered all over the island and that become more numerous as the series goes on. All of these were very interesting occurrences in the storyline of the show. All of them made you sit up and pay attention because after all, the writers surely wouldn't set all of this up without any consideration for how it would be explained right? Right? <laughs> well, at the time, we didn't know much about J.J. Abrams' writing and directing style, specifically that it follows the time-tested mantra of make it up as you go along. There were also a couple of other issues with like a writer's strike that hit Hollywood in like 2008, 9, I want to say, at which point the show took a steep nosedive because a lot of the original writers left the show. So even if there were some early ideas of how they were going to explain a lot of this away with those writers, they were gone when those writers left, which sucks. But point is, the show didn't explain any of these mysterious things that happen and go on. But despite this, the show was captivating, fascinating, and easy to obsess over thanks to its tendency to leave things unexplained and up to the viewer's imaginations. But it really didn't stick the landing at the end of the show when the bill came due. A lot of this probably because it tried to explain these things and utterly failed. But all of that is beside the point. The point is that you can go a long way as an author of a story and a narrative relying purely on mystery. In the case 
of Little Nightmares, there are many cases where there are bizarre things that happen without explanation. And you're meant to, in many cases, just accept what's going on as an effect or a symptom of the world and simply move on with the gameplay. Now, perhaps because I was raised watching Lost the TV show, I'm able to just turn off my brain when going through these sort of mysterious, creepy, spooky worlds and enjoy them for what they are. But it's not really what we do on this channel, is it? We dive into all of it. So that's what we're gonna do. The point is that I think most players should and probably will just drift through the story of these games and this particular universe without hyper-analyzing it, accepting it at its face value, just so that you can get onto the content that's been placed on top of the house of cards that is this game's world and lore. But I can also see how many people wouldn't approach these types of games in this way. Many people would simply come to the conclusion that this world doesn't make any sense, it isn't just Justified, and it isn't trying to explain itself at all, at least not in any sort of clear and concise way, they'll just give up on it. And I also don't think these people would be wrong to do that. After all, the story's universe should only be taken as seriously as it takes itself. If the world is worth exploring, it should probably have some level of competence. It should be built in a way where it can stand up to its own weight. If it should falter, it probably wasn't that interesting a world to begin with. Now, perhaps I'm being hyperbolic. Little Nightmares is weird. It's vague, and it doesn't really try to explain itself much at all. But this doesn't mean that it comes out of left field completely. There is a lot of lore here if you're willing to research it and understand it. Believe it or not, it's not actually as vague as some franchises like Bloodborne, but it does require a lot of effort to understand, especially once we hit the sequel. You'll see what I mean when we go through that game in detail, in full force, later on in this video. They bring out multiple timelines, possible time travel, and the prospect of multiple dimensions all at once. I know, it's a poor writer's dream. If you don't know how to explain a character's motivations or occurrences in the world, all you have to do is tack on some time travel, multiple dimensions, and multiple timelines that fit within the same world. Again, it feels as though I'm just describing Lost the TV show, which proves my point in my mind. That being said, while I don't think the story or the world of Little Nightmares is anything truly special, I do think the presentation is something to take note of. It's really hard to present a bizarre world of unsettling characters in a way that's memorable and yet still feels unique. Very few artists can do this well, and even fewer can make it feel robust enough to justify exploration, but Little Nightmares does. These games are also really short, which helps carry the player across the finish line. And I will say, this is something I really do appreciate about these games. They don't overstay their welcome, they don't pretend as though they should be some massive 15-20 hour experience, they just are what they are. You go through a brief, pretty dense story and world and get out the other end, possibly more confused than when you went in, but nonetheless having had a memorable experience. Now you'll notice I haven't mentioned anything about the gameplay yet. That's because there's not much here. We'll discuss it in much more detail in the coming breakdown of both games as storylines, but for now you just need to know that what you see is what you get. These are suspenseful adventure horror games with most of their gameplay coming down to two-dimensional platforming and puzzles. This is no Diablo or Grand Theft Auto. These games are very compact, they do exactly what you see on screen, and that's it. There's not really any depth here as far as gameplay is concerned. 
They're lean, mean, spooky little stories, and while they're not exactly Game of the Year material in my mind, at least not yet, they are worth your time. They're also very cheap, or even free, if you are a member of some of these services such as PlayStation Plus or Game Pass, which makes their recommendation a lot easier, I'll admit. As of the time of the recording of this critique, the first game is free and the second is on sale for $20. If you can get these games for $20 or less each, in my mind you're getting a bargain. And I think as long as everything I've described up to this point isn't a complete turnoff to you, these games are worth trying. But that concludes my spoiler-free discussion of these games. If you haven't played these games already, and if you'd like to in the near future, I'd recommend you pause the video, play them, and come back to the video. I'll be waiting. Nope. Still here? Well, awesome. Let's get into it. We're going to go through both games from start to finish, so buckle up. Also, we won't be discussing the DLCs. We can do it in another video. If you guys want to see it, let me know in the comment section below. But for the sake of this video, we're just going to go through the main content in the two games. We might reference a couple of things that happen in the DLCs. In the case of the actual discussion of the games, we're going to be looking at the two main games and that's it. Also check out RhapsodyStream.com. It's a project I've been working on. Basically we provide DMCA royalty and cost-free music for all of you guys. Anybody who wants it, you can download it, use it in your YouTube videos, or you can stream it directly off Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, SoundCloud, whatever you want to use in your live streams over on Twitch or YouTube. It's completely free to use, supports me, and you can even request individual and unique songs that me and my musicians will create for you for free all off of the website. Go check it out right now, RhapsodyStream.com today. RhapsodyStream.com. Thank you. And lastly, Patreon. All of these people made this video a reality. They got to see it a week before anybody else. So if you want to be on this list, if you want to be in that pinned comment, or if you want to get a vocal shout out, such as Einar G and Flamel110, head over to Patreon right now. Even a dollar gets you in that club. Depending on which tier you get, you can get a vocal shout out, get listed in the video or in the pinned comment. Just depends on what you want. Check it out. It would mean the world to me. It helps me get these videos out even faster. I just had my firstborn son, which is wild. I mean, at the time I'm recording this, he hasn't been born yet, but by the time you're seeing this, he's been born. So this whole timeline is like really breaking my brain a little. It's weird. By the time you're seeing this, my son will be born and I'll be at this house with the baby. Like I'll probably even be like uploading this watching this section with the baby, even though right now the baby isn't born yet. It's really confusing. It's breaking my brain. Anyway, I can use all of the support I can get. I would really appreciate it. it mean the world to me, but don't feel obligated. I can't force you to, so do your thing. I love you all. Let's get into it. Little Nightmares 1 and 2, here we go. For the sake of clarity, I'm just gonna get it out of the way now. The character's name is Six, and the ship that she's on is known as the Maw. M-A-W. So I'm going to refer to those by their names instead of just an obscure metal structure. It's a ship. Her name is Six. Getting it out of the way now. Once you hit start, you get a blurred out and dreamlike shot of an adult woman. As the camera grows closer, she turns and looks dead smack at the player, at which point the camera cuts and we see Six waking up in a suitcase bed. The scene immediately sets the tone. It's wet, 
it's cold, uncomfortable, and just a little spoopy. There's only one way to go, which is to the right of the screen. This is a really nice way for the developers to establish the generalized direction that you're going to be traveling over the course of the game. When in doubt, you travel to the right. This is pretty common in these sorts of side-scrolling titles that have some three-dimensional aspects. For the most part, they go in one direction. There are some cases where you'll travel up or down, or you might push into a level and that'll take you to a new screen. But on the whole, you're traveling to the right. It's always something that can ground the player and remind them they need to travel that direction if they're ever kind of reaching a, a stalling point. It's a nice touch and it works really well. Directly adjacent to this starting room is a lantern that you can ignite using the lighter that we saw on the title screen. This teaches the player how to use their light and that it can be used to navigate areas that would otherwise be unexplorable. You also have to open a hatch using the right trigger and pulling on it. Again, a simple way to force the player to learn how to navigate these levels. And this is something I actually really like. There's no heads-up display in this game. There's no HUD. There's no button prompts that are coming up saying, use right trigger to pull this latch up. You have to go and experiment with it to discover it yourself. Now, I let my wife try this game as a bit of a social experiment. Don't tell her I said this just to see how she handled it because she has a very low tolerance for games that push the player into figuring these things out for themselves. She gets very frustrated. So I gave her the controller to try and figure out how to get through this opening section. And she got so ticked off, they weren't telling her how to do it or how to open the latch or pull out the lighter that she just handed me the controller and was like, I don't care. I don't, it's kind of spooky. I don't want to do this. I'm good. So I think that's going to happen with some players, especially if they got this game for free through something like Game Pass or PlayStation Plus. But I encourage you to keep going because it's done really well. And the lack of a heads up display is intentional because it allows you to become even more immersed in this world. As you push in, you also will find a small statue, which to me seems to be a representation of the woman we saw at the very beginning of the game, something that will be important at the very end of the game. As you continue pushing into the Maw, you come across more human characters. What's clear is that they are much larger than you, so it would imply that you're not actually human or perhaps you're just a child and in this world children are much smaller than their adult counterparts which seems to be the case as we'll discuss especially once we hit the second game it'll make sense i promise more than likely six is just a small child that's been trapped on this gigantic ship and she's trying to get out the first thing that sets the tone is as you push through you can come across a man that has hung himself in the middle of the room it's a very haunting image just seeing his legs dangling, a chair that's been pushed to the side, and a small letter on the ground, which one can only assume was a suicide note. There's also a door on the far right side of the room with a gigantic all-seeing eye. These things are all over the place in this game, and it reaffirms the idea that you're always being watched, and it encourages this sense of instability and makes the player feel really unsettled as well. It's a good touch. Once again, the game doesn't help you out at all. The only way you can get through this door is by figuring out that you can drag the chair over to the door 
jump on it, and then jump on the handle, pulling it down with your weight. It's another example of the developers trusting that the player will figure it out, and that they don't need their handheld all the way through. But it's not as though the developers just leave you totally hanging. In the case of the door, there's only one way out of the room, so it's reasonable to conclude there's got to be some way you can get on the door. You see the chair, you put two and two together. Or in this case, right after you leave this room, there's a large refrigerator with blood stains going from the handle of the refrigerator outward. This would imply that you can pull on the handle just like this bloody person did in order to open it. And once you open it, you realize that you can climb the shelves to reach the top of the refrigerator and continue exploring through the level. It's these small touches that imply interactability that are so well done here that really make this game stand out to me. You explore through multiple different rooms, jumping over some great chasms, and also eventually learning that you can pull planks off of boarded up doorways using the same mechanisms that you used to open up the hatch earlier. You push through a room filled with leeches, which I, I, don't, I don't do leeches. I went fishing with my in-law's mother, she's like 95 years old, very sweet woman. She was like manhandling these gigantic leeches onto the fish hooks and they're like squirting blood everywhere. It was disgusting. I can't do leeches is the point. I don't do leeches. This was probably the scariest point in the whole game for me. I just don't do leeches. Let it be known. You continue exploring the maw, eventually finding a large stairway and a pulley system that you can use to open the door and then sprint across the open chasm to get under the door before it closes on you. This also teaches the player how to use the sprint function, which also allows you to jump farther. Now you're out of the real depths of the ship. It seems as though you're in like a third class or second class cabin. There's a lot of children's toys all over the place. It's all beds and bathrooms, very residential. While you're exploring this floor, you also encounter the all-seeing eye once again, but this time it's not just a carving on a door, it's an actual eye that projects light. It's slowly searching the floor, and if it catches you in the light, you freeze up and turn to dust. And what's kind of haunting is that there's a lot of what would appear frozen bodies and dust piles in this room all around you, most of which are a similar size to you, which would imply that other children were caught in this light, which for whatever reason does this to you. There's also another lamp on the other side of this encounter, which is the first time I put two and two together that these were the save points. If you ignite the lamp, it counts as a checkpoint. So if you die, you load back to that point, which encourages you to explore these and light them. It's a good touch, something I didn't realize with the initial lamp, but again, that's part of the fun of these types of games is that they don't hold your hand, they don't explain it to you, they let you figure it out and put two and two together, and it works really well. You push up on and through and eventually encounter what seems to be a nursery where the babies of the ship are held. And as you enter, the first deformed humanoid creature comes into the room. This is markedly different from the man we saw earlier hanging in the bedroom because that man seemed to have human-ish proportions, at least cartoon humanoid proportions. He didn't seem to be horrifically altered in terms of his physicality. This guy that's exploring the nursery and trying to hunt you down is not a normal person. 
at least doesn't look like it. Makes you wonder what's wrong with him. Why is he the one in the nursery? What does he want with you? What's the issue with you that isn't an issue with the other babies in the nursery? It, it starts triggering all of these questions and some of them will be answered, a lot of them won't be. You continue exploring but eventually begin to keel over in pain Seemingly something with your stomach. Doesn't take a genius to figure out that Six is probably hungry. This is something that will happen a lot. There's a real pairing between what the adults are experiencing with regards to gluttony and being obese, and you see these things exaggerated very clearly. And then the theme of food and starvation with Six being the complete opposite. She's very malnourished, skinny, hungry to the point of pain. And that dichotomy is set up very crisply and it's something that's going to be reaffirmed time and time again as we go through the game. But as we're pushing through, you encounter a young individual who's eating, sees that you're in pain and starving and throws you a loaf of bread. It's the first real act of kindness that we've seen from any character and it stands out as a remarkable experience. This doesn't seem to be a world that is forgiving or generous or kind at all. And so to see an act of kindness come from somebody that didn't have to show you kindness stands out, makes you wonder who this character is and why they were nice to you. This is also the first time I really started to question why Six is in this bright yellow raincoat. Everything else in the world up to this point has been very drab, and even this character that shows you kindness and gives you a loaf of bread is very devoid of color, sharing the same color palette as the rest of the level, which is dark blue, light blue, gray, black, just incredibly dreary and monochromatic. So I started questioning it. It represents color in a colorless world, a raincoat that protects against rain, which is a universal sign of sadness and the drab reality of life. Could be any of these things, but probably not. It's probably just a raincoat. I mean, it certainly is meant to differentiate Six against the other characters in the world. There is something different about her, but we don't know much of anything beyond that. Again, this is the danger of really vague and obscure world building. It's incredibly easy to start overanalyzing all of this because you start reading into every little thing, meaning and intention, even when there's nothing there. Now also at this point, I think it's healthy to ask, what exactly is the goal for the player here? At this point, all we really know to do is to run right. And that's it. They've established a couple of things, such as the fact that the world seems to be very unforgiving. There's people committing suicide. Six is starving. And even the character that gives you the bread seems to be remarkably sad, curling up in a ball after they give it to you. But none of this really gives the player anything to do. It's just run right. And this is why some people will not enjoy this game. They just won't connect with these types of titles where your task is to run right to continue experiencing this world and there's not really any clear objective given. Sure, we could say your goal is broadly to escape this awful place, but that's even so obscure that it doesn't really mean much of anything if you think about it. So either you get it or you don't. Either you're willing to run right until you find something new that's interesting and engaging, or you're not willing to do it and it's just not a game for you. There's no real right or wrong answer, it's just dependent on whether or not you personally 
can find yourself enjoying these types of titles. But moving on, you continue pushing through, eventually coming to a large bridge in a room that's filled with all of these crates. Now, when I was first playing the game, I didn't really think about what these things were supposed to be. I just thought, oh, well, they're just weird crates. And then they have this sort of metallic grate finish on them so that you can climb it. That's about it. It's only after I started really thinking about what these would be used for in this world based on what we know about it so far that it clicked. This is a prison for children. All of these are small cages that were used to carry the children into the ship, into the mall, and down to the small prison for children. That long lanky man, he's not actually a babysitter, he is a guard for this children's prison. That kid wasn't just chilling in a cafeteria eating a loaf of bread happily, he's in the prison cafeteria, which is why there are bars everywhere. He's a prisoner here just like Six is. But at the very least, Six seems to be trying to escape, so perhaps that's the significance of the color yellow. It's a sign of hope, a new day, the hope that you can escape this prison that they're in. But regardless, you continue pushing through, climbing and navigating the environments, eventually reaching the end of a hallway, which leads through a door. Once you exit, you're greeted with an achievement that reads the prison, which reaffirms the idea that this was in fact a prison. You push up on through, eventually reaching an area that's filled with a lot more color than the previous area. There's wallpaper, furniture, toilets, sinks, drawers, all sorts of stuff. You go through some simple rooms, one where you have to retrieve a key leading into the next one where you can use that key on a padlock to get through to the next area. You then reach an area where you have to throw an item into a button in order to get something to trigger. This is actually the first time that I had the game actually pop up and tell me what to do. I think this is because the combination of holding down the right trigger and pressing X while pointed towards something is a little bit convoluted and complicated. And I think this is because holding the object and then also pressing X while aimed indirectly at a point of interest is all kind of convoluted. And this could have been fixed simply by having it so when you hold the object and hit X, it throws the item as it does in the game, but throws it at the same height as if it's aimed at a button. This is a small distinction, but right now in the game, if you're faced away from the button and hit X, you'll throw the item, but it's very, very low. It doesn't go very high, nowhere near high enough that it would hit that button. So the player doesn't put two and two together that they could turn around and throw it at the button because as far as they can tell, the character isn't capable of throwing it that high. But when you're facing the button, Six is able to throw it much higher than she can when you're faced away from it. It's a small distinction, and I think it's why the developers had to put this text on screen explaining how to do this and that you can do it. It's unfortunate. I wish that they could have found another way around that because if you're gonna have no HUD, you should commit to it and just not have any HUD at all, but what are you gonna do? You act the button and it activates an elevator, and then you move through a couple more rooms reaching another elevator, activate that button, and you begin traveling way down into the depths of the ship, right where you just came from. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that you're headed right back towards the prison and the prison guard. It's at this point that the player has to start pushing to the left instead of to the right, which considering you just dropped deeper in the ship after coming all the way up the ship, 
gives the player an idea that they're backtracking, they're making less progress, they're going back to where they started. It's a good touch. While you're pushing through, Six is struck with another hunger attack, keeling over in pain. This one's much worse than the previous attack of hunger. She can barely walk. You come across a bunch of rats that are trying to get at some meat that's been placed into one of these children's cages. They scatter off when you approach. Because you're so hungry, the player will put two and two together and realize they should go for that meat. But the second that you get into the cage and grab the meat to fulfill your hunger, the prison guard comes back and captures you. I don't know what it is. I just love it when games set traps for the player and then you fall victim to that trap without even realizing you were going to. It's such a good touch. I love it. Six wakes up in a holding area surrounded by a bunch of other children that are in cages. The prison guard grabs one cage that has a child in it, pulling it off to do something. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's stacked six on top of another crate, which will allow the player to put two and two together that they can probably rock themselves off of the crate, which might be able to break them out. And sure enough, you do so and escape. You run to the left, but realize that it leads to the same gigantic stairway that you left the level through last time. But this time, there's no way across to get to the stairs. This means that you have to run to the right, the same direction that the prison guard just went with that child. So you begin working your way to the right, pushing on towards the prison guard. You quickly come upon him, taking a child and wrapping them up in what looks to be butcher paper. This is when I started putting two and two together. Uh, you see, there's this theme of hunger and food and the privileged feeding at the expense of the underprivileged all over this game. And what better way for them to feed at the expense of the underprivileged than to just feed on the underprivileged? They're going to eat the kids. And all of this imagery begins to get very haunting, especially as you push into the next room. You grab a crank opening a hatch, and when you drop on through it, once the prison guard starts to chase you, you find yourself in a gigantic holding tank that's filled with shoes. Now, I'm sure I was not the only one that took a moment uh, when I reached this point because this imagery is very familiar to anybody who has spent significant amounts of time studying or researching World War II and the atrocities that went on in Poland and Germany, Austria. I, I won't say the word just so that this video doesn't get all sorts of restrictions put on it, but all of these shoes and these holding tanks, the imagery is clear. It's a simile that they're pretty clearly drawing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily done in, in bad taste or anything, because I think thematically it works in the context of this story as well. And in the context of this story that they're trying to tell in Little Nightmares, I think they're making broader points that are clear and uh, concise points that we'll discuss as we continue on through the game. But I wanted to make this clear that this imagery, they knew what they were doing. I think it's effective here. Um, again, the ideas of uh, predatory behavior from larger, more powerful institutions on the underprivileged and those that uh, are easy to step all over and control, um, which are 
embodied and anthropomorphized in the form of these small children that are being farmed and treated in this way. It's an idea that we're all familiar with and it's pervasive in our world today. It's kind of heavy for a video game video, but this is the context. This is what the story is about in this, uh, in this series. So I'm going to address it, but this is part of the thing that I bring up with the case of little nightmares where they're actually handling much more serious subject matter than might initially be apparent than you might initially think. And that's what makes this series stand out to me as something that's not just like lost the TV show. It's not just trying to do things that are mysterious and strange for the sake of doing something mysterious and strange. They're actually discussing some heavy stuff and putting commentary on it in a much more delicate and, uh, I, I think reflective way. The only way they can make their point is if the player reflects on what's going on in this world that they've created and comes to certain conclusions as a result of that reflection. And the developers and writers and artists can guide the players on that path. But fundamentally, the experience is one that exists within the player's mind and their mind alone. It can only happen there. And that's part of the magic of these mysterious settings is that if you really take a moment to reflect on what's going on, the imagery and the subtext, everything they're trying to evoke out of the person experiencing this game, you can have an experience unlike anything else that you've ever had. And in the case of Little Nightmares, I think it does a really good job with it. I think the second game starts to try and explain things too much to the point where you lose some of these broader cultural references, but I mean, we'll get there. So that being said, we continue pushing through the ship. Mr. Dangly Arms chases you down, eventually landing in the same elevator that you took just a few minutes ago, except now you start riding it up making progress once again. But now he's in the elevator with you. You hide in a small crate in the corner. And as you reach your destination, a small tent-hatted creature runs out of the crate and seems to divert the attention on your behalf. These little creatures are all over the game. We will discuss them a little bit later on. But for now, all they seem to be to the player are these small environmental creatures that apparently have your best interests at heart. They always guide you in the correct direction. They seem to want to help Six escape the ship, but there's not much known about them. What's important is that they distract this guy so that he leaves the elevator, giving you a chance to escape. You start trying to find your way out, eventually finding yourself underneath the floorboards in what seems to be a toy shop. And once you find yourself out from under the floorboards into the toy shop itself, you begin hiding amongst the toys from Mr. Googly Arms in order to get through to the far right side of the room where you can climb the dresser to escape his reach. 
You continue trying to escape from him, pushing through different rooms filled with clocks, eventually landing in a library of sorts with bookshelves that lead hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. All the while, this big, wacky, inflatable, arm-flailing guardsman chases you, trying to bring you back down to the children's prison. There's some basic stealth mechanics at play here, such as crouching to avoid making sound, throwing objects to distract the character in question, and even sticking to the shadow themselves avoiding lit areas which make you easier to detect. I'm not actually sure if there is a distinction between light and dark areas in most of these levels. Some areas of course it is important that you stay in the dark because the light areas have some sort of triggering effect such as the all-seeing eye that we saw earlier which is funny that I call it that because he can't see outside of the light so it's not actually all-seeing beside the point. I don't know if these sorts of chase sequences are actually dependent on whether you're in a dark area versus a light, but it seemed to me as though there was a distinction and the fact that I was staying in the dark areas I think demonstrates the point that even if there is no gameplay mechanic that rewards you for staying in the dark versus the light, the fact that I intentionally was avoiding the light shows that I was immersed enough to believe or trick myself into believing that that was the case. Either way, it's high praise to the developers because they're achieving the same effect either which way. Pushing through the belly of the ship, you eventually find yourself out of the library into what seems to be some sort of ventilation system in the ship. There's two cracks in the metal and Mr. Googly Arms reaches through and starts to try and grab you through this area, this is like one of those moments that just gives me goosebumps and the music, the sound design, everything at play here is really, really well done. The only way to get around him is to crouch and slowly walk around his arms while he reaches up and tries to feel around one of the top pipes. It's absolutely agonizing and incredibly stressful and it's fantastic but right as you get through the big guy comes through the door and begins chasing you down the hallway you reach the end of a room where there's a large metallic door that's trying to shut but is being kept open by a large cage that's being crushed under its weight so the big armed guy can't actually get into the room but his long dangly arms are able to get through the room in what's probably one of the coolest moments of self-discovery in a video game that I've had in a long time, I realized that with the cage slowly buckling under the weight of the door, I could see it flinching and altering its physical form under the weight of the door, I realized that if I pulled out the support bars from the cage, the door would collapse and would probably just trap his arms, meaning that he couldn't pull me through the door even if he wanted to. So while he's reaching around trying to feel around for you, you have to climb up these cages or on top of this bin, jumping past his arms in order to get to the cage so you can pull it and break the supports. It took me a few tries, but once I got it, it led to one of the most satisfying defeats of any boss that I've had in a game in a long time. Pretty great, huh? <laughs> and so after his arms are chopped off, the door pops open and you are able to escape, receiving the achievement, the lair, showing that you've escaped it. 
On the other side, you keep pushing through to the right. You come across a rat that's been caught in a trap and is flailing, slowly dying under the weight of the rat trap. And I approached it thinking I could save it, but that's not what this game is. Once you get close, Six goes up to the rat and well, does this. Again, when we discuss these sorts of vague stories, it's easy to read into this all sorts of different meanings and, and things. On the one hand, you could say that for somebody that is on the absolute bottom of society, somebody who's starving and just trying to get by, it forces them to do things which are grotesque and even detestable to many other people. Or it's just a character in a video game eating a rat. I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but Regardless, what is an interesting choice is that right after you eat this rat, you are pushed into the butcher shop. And this is a sequence that I think most people will be familiar with because it was used in a lot of the advertising campaigns for the game. It's in a lot of the trailers. It's all over the place. It's just a gigantic fat guy that is chopping up a bunch of meat in this huge kitchen. And he is effectively the boss of this series of levels, just like the last series of levels had the long lanky armed guy as the boss. This level is going to be focused on this guy. And I actually really like this structure, especially for these shorter games. They have a couple of these characters or these enemies, bosses, whatever you want to call them, that they put a lot of effort into both visually, audibly, and then also in terms of their movement, the tonality within the levels, everything. And then they really give them time to shine. It's how these games work. It's also how Resident Evil, the last few games have worked. For instance, Resident Evil 8 Village had Mother Miranda's cronies and assistants that all served as their own bosses for certain levels. I think that's really cool. You can tone and set the area specific to that character make the whole thing unified in tone, in pace, in feeling, and in gameplay. I love it. I think this is great. And what's even better is that this guy feels markedly different from the last guy. Every single boss that you're going to come across in each of these levels will feel unique, and it's awesome to see. In the case of the long-armed guy, he regularly would come across you hiding under something and he would just reach under, grab you, and then you're dead and have to reload. In the case of the big butcher guy, he's a little more chillax. He'll see you run under something and go, come on, and then he might try to grab you, but you move over a little bit and then he doesn't get you. Then he just gives up and moves on with his day. He's got a lot of cooking to do after all. But as the level goes on and he grows more and more desperate to find you because you keep annoying the crap out of him, he becomes much more attentive and chases you a lot more actively. Before he was just treating you like a rat that was a little annoying, but by the end of the level, he is so sick and tired of your crap that he's gonna find you no matter what. As you push through the level, you eventually come across his bedroom, this big guy's bedroom, and there's a lot of really cool touches here. For instance, just in terms of visual design, how tall and skinny the level is when paired against how short and stubby and fat he is, is just really interesting as far as contrast is concerned. And then also when you look at where he sleeps, he had to drag two beds next to each other because he's so big. It's the only way that he can fit. You retrieve a key from his bedroom and push all the way back through the area where he's cooking in order to get through to the next area, which is where he grinds all of the meat for the sausage that they make. And you can actually open up the hatch drop some meat down, and then use the grinder to make a sausage link 
that you swing on to get through to the next room. It's one of the more creative ways of getting a rope for a level that I've ever seen. So props. <laughs> I mean, we're literally seeing how the sausage is made. That is kind of awesome. Like how many games have you played where you can see that? Not many. You have to go through this process a few times where you climb up to the upper area to pull meat down in order to drop the meat through the hatch into the grinder. It's an interesting way of padding out this section so that it takes a little bit longer instead of just having it. So you pull the string and meat falls, you pull the string, meat falls. You actually have to go get the meat, line it up with the hatch and then drop it. But you're able to push through eventually and you reach the walk-in refrigerator. The big guy comes in to grab some cheese, puts it in his pocket, very sanitary. And then you walk into the butcher room where you see that he's got the key you need on top of the butcher table. So you have to go into the next room and use some sort of meat grinder to distract him so that you can jump on the butcher table, grab the key and get out before he comes back to see you. I'll also say all of these things of meat are wrapped up in that paper and string that we saw the prison guard using earlier. So it's pretty safe to assume that the meat in uh in those wrappings is probably not fish that we see on the table at one point in the level it's probably something else you know sometimes it's just better not to know how the sausage is made right but you keep pushing through you find a couple of the big butcher guys washing a bunch of dishes they seem to be preparing for some sort of massive feast something that I'm sure we'll learn more about in just a little bit. Now, this is the first time that they really seem to chase you around and actively look for you. I read this both as them getting more and more pissed off that you kept showing up, but also that you are in the area where they're washing dishes. So they care a lot more about these rat-like creatures, at least that's how they view these children, showing up in these areas because this is where things are supposed to be clean and put together. So to have something dirty and gross is just not acceptable. Now it took me a minute to figure out where I was supposed to go and what I was supposed to do in this level because it just wasn't very clear. And then I put two and two together and realized that I could climb the plates and bowls that were here. It was actually a really cool discovery when I figured out that I could climb these things because it made me realize that the whole level wasn't just filled with set dressing, but interactive elements. Eventually you climb on a meat hook and swing into the next room with the two guys chasing you frustrated that they can't reach. You ride the hook jumping on and off to avoid the reach of these guys, eventually landing on the hook while they throw wine bottles at you going into the next area. You then find yourself able to climb all the way out to the exterior of the ship. This is probably the first time that people will really put two and two together that they're on a ship because prior to this, it just looks like a wet and dank and gross metallic structure that you're within. But this is the first moment it's very transparently clear that you're on a ship. You also see a bunch of very large figures walking on a small and thin bridge from another ship onto this one that you are in. Seems as though something very exciting is happening on this ship that all of those people would want to partake in. You climb all the way up and then you get a better look at everybody who's in attendance. They're all adults who are gigantic. Again, the idea of wealth and greed, gluttony and obesity all come to play at the same point here. All these people that can afford to come onto this ship for some sort of grand event are gigantic 
and gluttonous. All the while you are scrawny and starving, trying to escape. Without any other option, you go back into the ship, but this time on a much higher level. We get a much closer look at all of the guests in attendance, and you also get a clear look at the woman that we saw in that opening dream. She's here, separate from everybody else, and it's at this point that we can see the clear design difference between her and all of the people beneath her. In this case, literally beneath her. But we still don't know hardly anything about her. Putting that out of our minds for now, we continue pushing into the dining hall. You can see everybody walking in, taking their seats. Every step that they take, the ground shakes and the screen wobbles. It's a good touch. Everywhere you look, there is food. It seems to be endless. And everybody that you see is gorging themselves. What stood out to me as one of the most interesting and unique tidbits is that they're gorging on all of this food, but the second that any of these guests sees you, they practically leap out of their chairs, flip tables, trying to get to you. And no, it's not that they just view Six as a rat that needs to be whacked off of the kitchen counter. It's that they want to eat her. She is the most delectable thing at the table. They have all of this food at their disposal, but the thing they really want is the child. My evidence for this? Well, if you get caught by one of the guests, they they eat you. <laughs> but if you're able to escape all of them, you continue climbing your way, navigating around all of these guests. They all become frantic, chasing you down, trying to get their hands on you. You eventually break free of all of them and find yourself in a bathroom but the gigantic guy from earlier, the butcher, chases you in. After a few moments, he gives up and leaves. Now, I actually really struggled with this area when we were on stream, mostly because it's just not clear where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. But hey, that's kind of par for the course with this game at this point, so whatever. What you have to do is break the mirror and go through it. I didn't put that together because to me, I didn't realize I could throw something and break the mirror. Again, a small distinction. The game has trained you to believe that you can throw items much higher than usual, in this case, high enough to break the mirror, but only when you're throwing it towards a button. That's the only thing the game has shown you you can do that with that will change the height of your throw. So I didn't put two and two together that I could throw this and six would throw it higher if I was aimed at the mirror as opposed to just a button or anything else. It's a small distinction. It's a little nitpicky. Looking back on the footage now, I can see that the mirror is broken in the bottom right corner, which is supposed to be indicative that you could break the mirror further if you were to throw something at it. I didn't piece that together. It took me a solid few minutes. And even then, I think somebody in chat had to go break the mirror in order for me to realize that I needed to break the mirror. So it's a small complaint. It's a small distinction. Again, this is really probably the most frustrating thing that the gameplay has to offer. Significant because there isn't much gameplay here, but nonetheless, I'll point it out. I've pointed it out. Moving on. You break the mirror and climb through. Putting aside how kind of creepy it is that there is a one-way mirror that opens up to a small room with a chair, you climb up the grate and escape back out the top, climbing across some vents that lead back the way you came. You're able to sneak past the butcher and climb into the elevator, riding it all the way up where he came from before. You then enter a hallway where all hell breaks loose. 
it seems like the guests who haven't been fed yet see you and go absolutely crazy practically crawling on each other to try and get to you. You run through a room filled with all sorts of food, but none of it interests them. The only thing that will satisfy their hunger is you. One point of note, as you round this corner, you see a painting with the woman from your dream and what seems to be a small child down at her hand. But it happens so quickly that you're probably not going to be able to decipher much of anything from this. But setting that aside, you continue pushing through with all of the guests going crazy trying to get a hold of you. Eventually you reach a lantern that you're able to grab onto swinging to a safe platform, which sends one of the guests sliding over the top into the great chasm below. Visibly exhausted and keeling over in hunger once again after escaping the mob, Six approaches one of these small little tent hats that's offering her a sausage to tide her over. Once again, reaffirming the idea that they are simply trying to help her. But Six does this. This is the first moment that I started to really question whether or not Six was actually a hero in this story. These characters are simply trying to help her, but she seems to have alternative motivations. Is it really the case that the sausage wouldn't satisfy her and this was the only way that she could cure that sickness? Or is it that she wants something more? Well, this idea of vampiric draining of people's souls and life forces by way of eating them is not something that is strictly relegated to six in this game. In fact, the lady or the lady of the maw, the person that we saw at the very beginning of the game and that we've seen several times as we've explored the ship, she seems to have this same power. She is able to consume the soul and life force of these guests after she's fattened them up. And it seems as though that is feeding her vanity or that she's able to use it to maintain her youth or some other mixture thereof. It's not really clear. Regardless, you push on up through the elevator chasing the Lady of the Maw. You go into what seem to be her private quarters, which are filled with all sorts of mannequins and broken mirrors. One important thing to note is that she seems to wear a porcelain mask. When paired with the broken mirrors, this to me would suggest that she doesn't like looking at herself. There's something about her physical appearance that frustrates her or disgusts her. You can even find her brushing her hair in her quarters facing a broken mirror, which reaffirms this idea. Also, as you explore these private quarters, you find all of these small paintings of these small children. Now, I will say I initially thought that this was perhaps Six, and that Six possibly was the child of the Lady of the Maw, but this doesn't seem to be the case. The developers have actually publicly commented on this, saying that Six and the Lady of the Maw are not related. But what does seem to be the case, as we saw with that painting in the hallway earlier is that there is some sort of relation between the Lady of the Maw and a small child. Now it's possible that the child that showed you kindness earlier was actually the child of the Lady of the Maw or that there's some other child that we haven't met that is in fact related to her Either way, it's not clear, and there's no evidence pointing either which way. I will say there are plethora fan theories regarding the lady and her child, how this ties into the obsession with children on the boat, this idea that perhaps she used her vampiric abilities to drain 
the life force and the youth from her own child, and that is part of what has given her this youthful appearance, slender frame, and beauty that she seems so obsessed with. Or perhaps that she was upset that her child was more beautiful than her because her child is seen without a mask or a porcelain face, whereas the lady always has this mask on. It's interesting. Again, they're all just fan theories. There's no real evidence pointing either which way. And the developers have stayed very, very quiet as to what exactly is going on here, leaving much of it up to the player's imagination. Again, the idea that you can get really far with mystery and mystique. You don't need to explain everything. And often, leaving things up to players' imaginations can actually be more satisfying than giving a clear, concise answer. Pushing into the final level of the game, we break a vase to get a key and unlock a door that is closely guarded by the lady. I mean, it makes sense. The door is in her private quarters and the key was hidden within a vase that you, in many cases, will just happen to break. Whatever's in this room, she doesn't want anybody getting to. Private quarters and then also with a lock and then the key is hidden right next to her bed. Something very precious to her is in here. The second you enter, she begins chasing you down. And reasserting the idea that she has some sort of special ability, she's surrounded by black smoke while she chases you. Ah, see, the lost tie-in from earlier, black smoke monster, the lady of the maw has black smoke, ah, they're the same thing. Eventually you squeeze through a vent and she's not able to pursue you anymore. So I guess she isn't completely made of smoke, but still, black smoke. I'll count it. All of the mirrors in this level are shattered. She seems to have gone through this entire area, smashing everything that could reflect her own appearance back onto her. There are mannequins everywhere, all of which that seem to share at least somewhat of a close resemblance to the lady. In the next room over, you find a singular mirror that's resting on a pillow. It's the only mirror that hasn't been shattered in this entire area and it's resting very carefully on this pillow which would at least signify that there's something very special about it so this begs the question what's special about this mirror why would she save this one mirror and destroy all of the others there's no answer given but when we return into the other room while carrying it we see the lady standing resolute in the center she disappears in a cloud of smoke, but when she reappears and you turn to face her with the mirror pointing at her, it shoots a burst of energy that sends her flying back. This happens a handful of times, eventually culminating in the lady's last push, which results in the mirror sending such a bright blast of energy that it shatters it and sends the lady flying back with her mask broken. Extremely weakened and devastated, the lady is left lying on the floor, mask broken with her hair undone lying on the floor. Six approaches very carefully, but the lady doesn't do anything. And once Six gets close, this happens. After the lady is dead, the smoke begins swirling around Six, seemingly imbuing her with the power that the lady held before. Six now walks through the center way 
crossing all of the same gluttonous people that tried to eat her before. But this time, as they get close, she's able to suck the life force out of them, killing them, growing ever more powerful. It's this scene that allows us to infer that this is what the lady would do with these guests after their meals as well. She would fatten them up and then walk amongst them, draining their life force fulfilling her and killing them. You reach the end of the dining hall, walk up the stairs, and leave the ship. Hopefully forever. And that's Little Nightmares. And that's the game. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It leaves you wondering what exactly is going on. Why was the lady acting the way she did? Why are you now able to suck the life force out of people? What was the result of sucking the life force out of people? Does it give you some sort of special ability that you didn't have before? Does it separate you from all of them? Is there some significance or relationship between Six and the Lady of the Maw? Why was Six so committed to getting to the Lady of the Maw, killing her, and then once she got to her, why did she suck her blood and eat her flesh? What does all of this mean? No one really knows. There's a lot of imagery and similes that are drawn between different moments in history, certain historical events. There's imagery drawn, of course, from events that happened in the 1940s, for instance, and imagery that we see in the game. There's certain events that are drawn between gluttony and starvation, the wealthy and the poor, the privileged and the underprivileged. But at its core, what is this a story about? It's kind of hard to say. There's lots of fan theories that you can research online, some of which I've brought up in this very video. But at its core, the writers have not said or made it clear what the story really is about. And that's very intentional on their part because it's frankly better not to know. Thinking about it, reading into all of this, is what makes the game really stand out. It's what makes it phenomenal. It's what makes it feel so mysterious and interesting. If they were to start to answer all of these questions, I think it probably would leave the player less satisfied than if they went and did what they're doing, which is just leave it kind of vague. But surely the sequel will answer some of these questions, right? Surely the second game will bring a lot more information out and into the fold. Well, Let's get to it. Like I said, we're not going to be going through the DLC. There are questions answered in the DLC. There's a lot more parallels drawn between all of this. I would be happy to go through the DLC in a subsequent video, but for the sake of this video, we're just going through the base games because I think the overwhelming majority of players will just go through Little Nightmares 1 and Little Nightmares 2. They probably won't do the DLC. So with that out of the way, if you want to see that, let me know. I'll do it. Just let me know if you want to see it in the comment section below. Moving on, let's discuss Little Nightmares 2. Little Nightmares 2 opens up with a dreamlike shot of a door at the end of a very long hallway. We see the same all-seeing eye from the first game, but this time it appears to be upside down. The camera slowly pans closer and closer until eventually the screen vibrates, it loses focus, and we transition 
to our protagonist. This game is headed up by a boy named Mono. Visually, he stands apart from Six in the first game. For one, there isn't a bright color that makes him stand out, and instead of a raincoat, he's wearing a bag on his head. Our first exposure to Mono is him waking up from this dream that we just started the game with in front of a TV in the middle of a dark and foreboding forest. You begin exploring it the same way as you did the last game, moving to the right. You come across a gigantic sack that's hanging from a tree and is filled with bodies. Now from the very first moment that this game begins, it seems to struggle with its tone and theming. While it's dark and spoopy and scary and depressing, it's not as lean or specific as the first games was. In the first game, there's a lot of very clear imagery that's precise and knows what it's trying to communicate and does so clearly. In this game, it's much less focused. It's more just a spoopy forest and then bodies. And that's it. Perhaps I'm just not reading into this game as much as I did the last game, but to me it seems as though the imagery is much less specific in this game, and it seems to be more of just generic horror imagery, to be honest. The next several sections are basic tutorials on pulling objects, navigating terrain by way of jumping, grabbing onto ledges, pulling yourself up, sliding under boulders and trees, etc. It's all very straightforward and, again, perhaps I'm just a fanboy of the first game, but it seems much less creatively employed than the previous game. In the last game, we at least had reason to search for solutions to our problems, and when you solved a solution to discovering an input, it felt as though you were discovering something really unique, that you had accomplished something, whereas in this game it's much less significant. It just feels like you're going through the motions of a tutorial sequence and that's it. But I will admit this is probably mostly due to the fact that this is a sequel and not the first game in the franchise. Part of that moment of self-discovery that I praise from the previous game was something that could have only existed in the first exposure to this game in this franchise and movement set and couldn't be replicated because the discovery of interaction, of grabbing items, of throwing them, of sliding under items, of using your lighter, those were things that were taught to you for the first time only once. So you can't just replicate that this go around because they're going to share a lot of the same control inputs and same basic ideas when it comes to level design and navigating the map. So I, I get it. It's not something that could be perfectly replicated or that you would likely see again, but it's still a somewhat underwhelming introductory tutorial sequence to the sequel in a franchise that up to this point has nailed it every single time. Granted, that was only once, but still. As you push through the forest, you find a large area that is filled with leaves and debris. As you push through, you'll trip this trip wire and a net will catch you. Now, this is the first moment that actually got me worried for what the rest of the game was going to have to give me. You see, it became very clear and will become even clearer as we go through the rest of the game that Little Nightmares 2 relies a lot more on trial and error than the first game. Sure, the first game had moments that you were expected to just go through, get killed, reload, and go back through, having this newfound knowledge of how you're supposed to go through or what enemy or danger you're avoiding. But in Little Nightmares 2, it is all over the place. They use this trope 
constantly. You run into a net, it catches you, now you know you have to avoid that net, whereas before you would have had no idea. Or you're running through a hallway, you don't know to avoid a certain door until you run in front of it and are captured, killed, and forced to reload. This is all over the place in this game. It was a necessary evil in the previous title, and here it's an overused trope that makes gameplay feel much less engaging and ruins the immersion in many cases. Again, we'll see it time and time again as we move forward, so keep an eye out for it. The next area has some very basic bear traps that you avoid, and then you can use a stick to trigger one so that you don't step on it while climbing through this log. They use this system a couple more times, such as when they ask you to throw pine cones into a nest of leaves that are filled with these traps in order to trigger them before you climb your way through. But this mechanic isn't going to be used much beyond this point in the game, so don't get your hopes up that we're going to see a lot more built off of this. It's probably good because this isn't that engaging a system anyways, but still, it's kind of a one-off cool little tidbit thing that we have here. Mono then pushes his way up to the hunter's cabin, which is also surrounded by many traps. And this is the moment that the player is likely realizing that all of these traps they've been avoiding for the last five or so minutes during the tutorial section were all set by one person who's incredibly paranoid and is living likely in this hunter's cabin, or at least close to it. Mono climbs into the house through several rooms, all of which appear to be empty, and eventually pushes on to the basement. Now at this point, I want you to evaluate what exactly is going on. What is Mono doing? Why are they doing it? In the last game, there was a specific moment where we had to evaluate what the actual goal of the game was, what we were trying to do. And in that case, it was pretty clear. We are trying to escape the ship and get out alive. We don't know much beyond this other than just keep running to the right, but at least it's a goal, however vague it may be. But in the case of Little Nightmares 2, the initial presumption would be that we are trying to escape the forest and get somewhere safe. Okay, that's fair. We continue running right, and eventually we run into a hunter's cabin, which seems to host or belong to the individual that set all of those traps, which to me would imply that it's probably not that safe. And then Mono pushes his way down deeper into the house, into the basement, which seems stupid. Granted, this is something we see all over the place in horror games, novels, stories, movies, everything, where a character in a horror game is doing something that just doesn't seem to make sense, that's concocted by the authors just so that they can get them in a dangerous situation so that the mechanisms of a horror story can begin to take place and play out. In the case of Little Nightmares 2, it really doesn't make sense why Mono is doing what they're doing at this point. Once you reach the door at the other end of the basement, though, perhaps it clicks. You see, in this basement is housed and caged a small child, similar in size to you. Now, I'm not sure if Mono is supposed to know that this child was trapped here and therefore is trying to break into the house so that they can save them. I don't know if that's supposed to just be something that Mono stumbled onto and happened to discover while in the house. I'd like to think it was intentional that Mono was coming to save this child intentionally, which is why they entered the house to begin with, but perhaps it doesn't matter. You look around the basement and find a small axe that you're able to swing into the door, breaking it apart so that you can break out 
the small child. Inside, you find them cowering under a small bench. There are markings all over the walls, and what one can only assume are days checked off one by one along the wall. And by my count, there are at least 50 of these small hashes on the wall alone. Who knows if they were locked in here for that entire duration in one go, but it's safe to assume that that's probably the case. Whoever this kid is has been locked down here for going on two months at least. There's also all sorts of sketches and drawings of different stick figures, most of whom have their faces scribbled out, and one small character on the left side of the wall, which you might recognize if you played the first game, or if you watched this video. It's one of the small tent-headed creatures that we saw six devour in the last game. We don't know who this kid is, but they seem to be familiar with these tent-headed creatures, and there's some person that they feel a connection to strong enough that they they chose to draw them on the walls, but that they don't like their face or want to see their face enough that they scribble it out. Soon after offering your hand to the child, they break past you and sprint up the stairs. You sprint up the stairs chasing them. You come across a dining room that seems to be filled with dummies. I don't think these are supposed to be actual characters in the world that have died or are incapacitated or in some sort of zombie-like mode. It, it honestly looks like they're just dummies, but maybe these are actually supposed to be bodies. I'm not sure, actually. In the next room, something significant happens. Mono finds the small child who's trying to jump up to grab the lever that will allow you to get into the attic. But the small child realizes that they can't do this alone and they need your help. And it's at this point that you're actually able to work with this child instead of just for them. They give you a boost so that you can jump up, pull the lever, and descend the ladder. And it's this teamwork that's going to allow this relationship to be built over the course of the game. It's something that works fantastically well in video games because they're so interactive. It's something Naughty Dog uses in pretty much every single game that they've almost ever made. It's frankly an incredibly powerful narrative tactic when you can allow relationships to be built not just in cutscenes and with dialogue, but also in gameplay. And in fact, it's such a powerful narrative tool that some games, such as Little Nightmares, are able to use it exclusively without needing dialogue or anything else. Once up in the attic, you begin looking for a hand crank that you find in the hand of another dummy. Again, it seems like a dummy because when you pull her arm off, they're stuffed inside, so I don't think it's supposed to be an actual person, but I mean, you could have fooled me. But then again, all of the characters in this game look kind of surreal, so maybe it is just a person that's stuffed or was a real person who died, and then the hunter that runs and owns this house stuffed her. I, I don't really know, and I don't know if it's discussed or explained anywhere. I haven't found anything on it, but nonetheless, it's there. Once you have the key, you're able to go back down out of the attic and use the key to open up the back door. The second you exit, you see shoe prints in the mud directly outside the house, and the shoe prints seem to lead from this shed into the house. This, I thought, indicated that whoever left these footprints was actually in the house with you the whole time. But the more I look at it now, it seems like the shoe prints likely were leading out to the shed and not from the shed into the house. Because we run into the guy who left them right after this. 
in the shed. I'm just going to refer to this guy as the hunter. He has a rifle by his side and he seems to be gutting some sort of animal that he caught. In all likelihood, all of those traps you were struggling with at the beginning of the game weren't just set because he was paranoid and trying to protect his property, but were also set so that he could capture animals and creatures that were around the property and around the house. Are they there so that he can hunt and eat what he catches or are they there to protect a very paranoid man or is it that he set them to protect the house and then he also just happens to eat and skin and gut everything that he catches in those traps is it all of the above i don't know but either way this is a dangerous man who doesn't take kindly to small critters such as children. The only way to get past him is by opening this small latch, which alerts the hunter and he comes bursting out the door chasing you, firing his rifle. I know it's probably bad, but this section reminded me a lot of the opening of Ratatouille when all the rats are chased off by the crazy old lady who has the rifle and is shooting like crazy and she's got the gas mask kind of like he's got here. I know that probably ruins this scene for a lot of people, makes it not quite as scary, but I'm just telling you like it is. I I can't unsee it now, and now I'm sure some of you will suffer with this for the rest of your lives every time you look at this scene as well. So there we go. You try to get away from him using some tall grass in what is objectively, I think, a very visually impressive sequence. The depth of field is fantastic, really gives the perception that these levels are much larger than they actually are. I mean, after all, these are just straightforward 2D move to the right levels, very typical side-scrolling type stuff. But the sheer vastness and fidelity of these sequences is just so impressive. And buckle up, because this fidelity is going to maintain itself throughout the rest of the game. It's a very beautiful game. The first one was, and the second one doesn't disappoint at all. Eventually, you're able to lose the hunter by climbing into a mole's tunnel system that goes under a tree. You break out the other side, and he's gone. There's some more tag team gameplay sequences that play out over the course of the next 10 to 15 minutes or so, including this one section where you're able to climb up, grab a cage, drop it down, and break in, revealing a singular yellow rain hat, which I thought was going to be some sort of Easter egg that this was six and six had been captured in this cage and you're finding the hat and it's very sad. They never really do that here for reasons we'll discuss in just a minute, but all this really is meant to be is a collectible hat that now you're able to wear. You can actually, in this game, swap out the hats from just the paper bag and put on different hats that you discover over the course of the game in the coming hours. It's kind of a fun way to customize the character. It's cool. I think this does a much better job of encouraging you to carefully go through the levels beyond just trying to get a super secret ending. I think this is much more engaging. So. I'm glad to see it here. The hunter continues giving chase, eventually getting you all the way down to a bog area. And all of these levels are both haunting, stressful, and visually very impressive. Just goes to show you, you don't have to have the villain or the monster in frame perfectly in order to have an engaging sequence. Sometimes you can leave a little bit up to the imagination of the player. He eventually is able to chase you all the way into a small shed that's filled with all sorts of tools and a shotgun on the wall. He begins breaking his way in after you lock the door, breaking the door down piece by piece. And the small child that you rescued has the idea to take the shotgun off the wall 
does so, and then you have to go over to the trigger, pulling it, seemingly killing the hunter. Right after you do this, you go out the other side, again, pushing to the right, hop on a door that's sitting on the beach, and drift off slowly into the open ocean. As you slowly drift through the water with your new friend, one of the most interesting tidbits that you will see is that there are TVs everywhere. Old set boxes. It's not really clear why they do this at this point. There's just TVs in the water. It's kind of weird, but it will be very important as we move forward. Remember this imagery. It is intentional. Soon after, you come up on a decrepit and decaying city. Buildings are slowly creaking and collapsing. Whatever this city is or once was, it is no longer. And as you push into the city, slowly exploring it, you will discover that this is not the only indication that the city is in trouble. One of the first things you encounter is what seems to be a full-grown man's suit hanging out of a TV set that's been punctured all the way through. This will, of course, bear a striking resemblance to the imagery we had in one of the first things we encountered in the first game, which was a man hanging with a chair underneath him and a suicide note. In this case, it seems to be a man hanging from a TV set, which perhaps I'm reading into this too much. It seems that they are drawing a similarity between these two, but then again, I could just be reading into it too much but we'll get to it. As we continue exploring, we'll discover more and more context for everything going on with these TVs, so we'll get there. As you go from building to building, room to room, you will see that there are a lot of full-grown adult outfits that are just completely empty all over the place, seemingly as though their bodies were completely disintegrated while they simply sat in chairs, stood working, or watched television. This is the first indication that something has happened to the adults, or at least some of the adults in this city. Something happened which caused a rapture-like effect, disembodying them and taking them away, leaving their clothes in place, but their bodies going somewhere. There's some further platforming and some basic puzzles that you can solve with the help of your new friend. It's all fairly straightforward. It's mainly just to keep the gameplay somewhat engaging while you explore these levels. And if that suit hanging out of the TV wasn't some sort of simile to the first game's instance of a man hanging himself, then this one certainly would be that. While I can't spot any sort of suicide note in the level, there does seem to be some sort of paper crumpled up on the left side of the screen. It's very clear. This individual did hang themselves and then their body disintegrated or something, leaving their clothes perfectly intact and causing their shoes to drop to the floor beneath them. Again, we don't know what's going on, but something is wrong. After you climb your way through a door that has a crack in it in this room, you go into the next area, which has a singular television in the center. On the screen is blaring white, causing mono extreme agony. As you work your way towards the television, you eventually put your hand on it, and this triggers a moment where the player is able to use the left stick to level out and straighten the hallway that's seen on screen. This will trigger all sorts of memories of the opening sequence of the game, which of course was a long hallway with the eye door at the very end of it. After straightening it a handful of times, Mono is sucked into the television, taking you into that same hallway that we saw at the beginning of the game. You run towards the doorway in this dream realm, and then you're snapped back to reality. Your new friend is watching over you and seems genuinely concerned for your well-being. 
but as far as you can tell, you're fine, so you continue to push on. You exit the building and find the next building to your right to be a large what at least appears to be a school of some sort. Now, I think the universal sign, at least in mass media, for trying to escape something is a small rope tied of bed sheets or white cloth of some sort dangling from a window. That's hanging out of whatever this building is. So you'd think there's probably something inside you want to escape, but uh, Mono decides to climb it, so... Yeah. Again, in the first game, it was very clear. We're trying to escape the ship. And if that means you got to push into areas you don't want to push into, but that's all you can do to make progress. Great. That makes sense. But in this game, it just seems like we're pushing deeper and deeper into the crapper for no reason at all. At least no reason that the player is told. And there doesn't seem to be a reason for the player character, Mono, to be putting themselves in these dangerous situations. One has to ask whether or not the writers ever had a reason to begin with or if they were just like well we're gonna start in a forest and then you're gonna push into a city and as you get deeper in the city things get scarier and spoopier okay but why are they going into the city we'll let the player figure that out it's a secret like you, you see what i mean why this sort of mystical inexplicable narrative justification can get dangerous and can lead to things that don't really make sense this is exactly the instance where it doesn't really make sense. The first game, you could hand wave it away because the broad goal made sense that you're gonna put yourself in uncomfortable situations to achieve that broader goal. In this case, we don't even know what the broader goal is. It just seems like you made a friend, you escaped the situation you were trying to escape before, and now we're just going through a scary city and that's it. Regardless, as you push your way into the building, you'll find all sorts of crazy, scary stuff. It seems to be some sort of boarding school where students would actually sleep. There's bunk beds all over the place and very unsettling imagery. There's all sorts of traps that have been set up, swinging buckets filled with books and axes and spoons, falling lockers, all sorts of stuff that seems entirely designed just to kill you. As you continue pushing through the school, you'll find what are known as the porcelain children. These seem to be small doll-like children that have porcelain heads that you can crush using hammers that you find in the world. Pretty soon after discovering these cheeky little blighters, they knock a locker down on mono and capture the small child that you encountered. You can't go left, so you gotta go right. Once you go right, you'll encounter a small porcelain child, but as you run up to them, you'll realize you can't actually do anything to them. They'll jump you, kill you, and force you to reset. This is because I think most people won't put two and two together quite yet that they can use the hammers to crush the porcelain heads of these creatures. Once you realize that though, you can use the stick the same way you used it to set off those bear traps that they had in the forest you're gonna use the hammer to hit the kid or doll person, incapacitating them so that you can continue on your merry way. You use the hammer to break your way through, eventually landing in a large classroom where a kind of scary looking woman is teaching a classroom full of these porcelain headed children. Some of the children's heads are cracked. Some of them are intact. I don't really know what the significance of this is. If you have a theory, I'd love to hear it down below. I'd actually really be interested in that. I think in some cases it's supposed to be indicative of, you know, education isn't actually that meaningful because everybody just has hollow porcelain heads at the end of the day anyways. 
Maybe it's that institutionalized education is useless. I'm not sure what they're trying to say, and I'm not sure they know what they're trying to say either. So yeah, either way, you creep your way across the classroom, get into the next room, try to climb a dresser, but you accidentally knock it over. Hopefully you're quick enough that you climb into this knocked over drawer and hide from the teacher who breaks her way in and uses her very long neck to inspect the room. And after discovering nothing too concerning, she leaves and returns to her post. This long neck is going to come up time and time again. She's very spoopy. Again, Little Nightmares 2 is going to use the same system that the first game used as far as bosses pursuant to certain levels. In this case, the opening sequences were guarded by the hunter or the scary man you killed with a shotgun. And then the second boss is going to be this teacher lady and it'll carry on so forth and so on as we move through the rest of the game. You grab the key and the only way to progress is back through the classroom behind the teacher's desk. She's standing resolute watching over the students with a large wooden stick that she slams on the table if they start to nod off or lose focus. It makes me wonder if like the developers were raised in a super strict Catholic school and this is their way of like adding commentary to the idea of strict institutionalized education that's backed up by physical punishment. Or if they're just like, hey, my, my teacher back in elementary school was a major biatch and this is how I'm going to get back at her by saying she had a really long neck and so we'll make a character that has a creepy long neck and is in a horror video game. There's probably something like that at the core of all of this. I don't know, but it's so specific that I'm thinking it has to be inspired by something real. I don't know. Maybe there's an interview or something I missed from the developers discussing this. I don't know. Let me know if you do. Anyway, you sneak your way around the teacher and you're able to use the key to open the door to an elevator and take it up a floor so that you can try and save your friend. There's some basic puzzles. You have to use a pipe to bash in a kid's head and then break through a doorway. And then you get to this large attic-like area where that same teacher is teaching beneath. She uses her long stretchy neck to come up and inspect when she hears something out of the ordinary. You push your way into a library, but at this point the teacher has had enough. She storms into the room and starts pursuing you across the library, through the bookshelves, over the racks, and around these large book pillars. I'll say I know it's nitpicky and kind of stupid, but the first game had really specific imagery in everything it did. A lot of it was grounded, but surreal, as I've said many times during the course of this video. But in the case of Little Nightmares 2, there's a lot of stuff that just goes full-blown surrealist, such as these gigantic circular towers of books bound by a rope. I don't know what purpose these are supposed to serve. I don't know how this is practical within a library. Again, I know this is stupid and like I'm bringing this up in the context of a woman with a seemingly limitlessly long neck. But still, it's a distinction that has to be drawn because the last game was at least somewhat grounded. Everything, while surreal, had a practical purpose to it within the Maw. In this case, there's no purpose to these things at all, other than just serving a gameplay-focused purpose where you are circling around the pillars as she gives chase and looks around it trying to see you. But I digress. 
you break your way through eventually landing in this large hall that connects to multiple classrooms. There's some basic platforming and puzzle solving that you have to do here specifically with rebuilding this chess set. And you do all of this to get through to the next area which is the kitchen and cafeteria for the kids. After breaking the heads of several of these porcelain headed school children, you're actually able to use one of them on top of your own head to disguise yourself and make your way amongst them. And this actually started what I was hoping was going to be one of the more interesting gameplay mechanics that the game would have to offer, specifically social stealth and using costumes as disguise. Perhaps it would change how you encounter and deal with enemies because you need to preserve some element of them that you can reuse in order to disguise yourself and make your way through certain levels. Don't get your hopes up. That's not really here. This is a one-off thing that you're able to do. It's not brought up again. You make it through the cafeteria, pushing on through hordes of these children, all of whom seem to be horrifically misbehaved, beating each other up, slamming each other against the floors and walls, hanging from ceiling lights. It's pure, pure chaos. At the end of this hallway, you find yourself in a large storage area that houses everything from books to spices to brains in jars. And bringing up again the idea that everything in these worlds should have a purpose that's practical within the world. Even though the world is surreal, those surrealist characters would need things, practically speaking, in order to live their lives. So I'm just asking that the world takes itself seriously enough that it's grounded for the characters within it. In the case of this storage room, it's freakishly tall. It goes up like a hundred feet. Is that practical? Yes, actually. In the case of the school teacher, her neck is able to go all the way up to the very tippy top of the building when you were in her classroom three or four stories above it earlier. So for her to have a storage room that's freakishly tall makes sense. She'd be able to look and navigate it using her long neck, seeing what she needs. Even if it's 50 feet up, she could find it, use her mouth, pull it down. Again, it's a small distinction to make, but it's these things that make these games so much more immersive that you believe that this could actually work and exist in this creepy, bizarro world because the characters could actually exist within it. Now, if the boss of this area were that fat chef guy from the first game, this wouldn't make any sense at all because it wouldn't be practical to him. But this area is practical to the teacher. Once you're at the top of this area, you find the jar that has the brain in it. You throw it all the way down to the bottom of this room, shattering the glass, but leaving the brain exposed. And you're able to use this brain to throw up against the button, opening the door. In the next room, the teacher seems to be preparing experiments for a biology class of some sort. She has what appear to be frogs inside of a large jar, and she's preparing them to take into the next room. There, you will find all sorts of weird, creepy things inside of jars and formaldehyde. Severed feet, brains, intestines, everything you could possibly imagine is here. You stealth your way across the countertops, eventually breaking through a vent that you're able to take to the next area, escaping the teacher, at least for now. The next sequence is probably my least favorite of the entire game. It's a long hallway where you have a hammer and you have to perfectly time the swings to take out these school children as they pursue you. Maybe I'm just bad at this, but you have to time the hammer swings 
just right as they charge you because the hammer swing, once you press the button, takes a second to actually come down, which is realistic, I get it, but also annoying because the children can change their path and movement even after you've pressed the button. If they're chasing you, coming up on you, you hit the button, begin to swing, they can dodge to the left quickly and then jump you and you're just left screwed because you already pressed the button. It's a small complaint, I grant it, it's a small moment in this game, but I died more times during this sequence than any other sequence in the entire game. I'm not joking, I just counted through it while looking through this footage. I died 14 times trying to get past this one stupid sequence with a single hallway and a few kids chasing me down. Again, maybe I just suck at this, but it was very frustrating. After you break your way through, you find a couple of porcelain children in a bathroom that have hung your friend with a rope at the very top of the ceiling. You're able to take them out using that same hammer and then get your friend down, who falls all the way to the porcelain down on the floor below. Fearing he killed his new friend for a moment, Mono hesitates before going and approaching closer, at which point your friend twitches, and appears to be just fine. With both the player character and the player feeling very relieved, you continue along your merry way, making your way into the next building, which seems to be a music hall of some sort. There's pianos and all sorts of musical instruments strewn about. There's a couple basic puzzles and some platforming, but probably the most notable moment in this area is with another porcelain child. They're in the corner of this room, drawing with chalk on the floor, all sorts of handprints, circles, and all-seeing eyes, imagery that's very familiar to us after going through the first game. Realizing you have to take them out, you go to grab the hammer, but your friend slowly sneaks up on them. Right as you prepare to swing, your friend pounces the porcelain child, not needing a hammer, just slamming their head into the floor until it shatters into a bajillion pieces. And it's at this moment that you realize this little person that you consider your friend is capable of a lot more than you initially realized. They're not as helpless as you may have thought. Something to keep in mind as we move forward. You continue exploring, eventually stumbling onto the teacher in a large hall with a piano. She's sitting alone playing and after you make your way across the upper area around her, she freaks out and you're forced to jump into a small vent. She gives chase, slamming her head through the vent, trying to get a hold of you, but is unable to, at least if you play properly, and you're pushed all the way out of the school, landing in a dumpster. Having escaped the horrors of the school, you make your way, once again, to the right. You cross a large bridge and see what can only be described as a haunting image of the city. There's a gigantic chasm going across the middle of it. All of the buildings are dilapidated, shifted, and tilting. It's raining and really does look miserable. You continue exploring and as you push your way through, you eventually stumble upon a small area filled with luggage. At the center of the room is a small yellow raincoat crumpled on the floor. Your friend goes right up to it and puts it on, revealing their true colors as the PlayStation achievement reads off once your friend puts it on. This is actually six. 
from the first game. Now, I really didn't see this coming when it happened. I actually intentionally avoided watching trailers or commentary about the games moving forward. I just was totally disconnected leading into my playthroughs of the games. Now, when I look back, all of the promotional materials, all of the posters, all of the trailers show Six in her yellow raincoat paired next to Mono. So it's pretty clear that this is the same girl from the first game that you're playing with and that this is a prequel of some sort uh, or some sort of sequel, but prior to the raincoat. Who knows? Who knows? I realized that that was very transparently communicated before the game's launch, and everybody that was a fan of the first game going into this one probably knew that before it was revealed. I'm in a very rare instance and circumstance where I did not connect or process, look at, or think about any of that stuff prior to playing these games one after the other in very quick succession. So this actually was an oh shit moment for me where I actually was surprised when this was revealed. And I gotta say, I love it. All of a sudden that moment where Six went ham on that small child instead of allowing you to use the hammer made sense because in the first game we see Six do all sorts of kind of messed up stuff showing that she might not actually be the hero that we would want her to be. She might actually be much more of an anti-hero or villain than a hero. And that's a theme that will continue in this game. Trust me. The dynamic duo continues exploring the city, eventually finding themselves inside of a hospital. This is one of the most visually interesting areas of the game, I think, because there's a lot of pretty haunting enemies here. This area relies a lot less on a singular boss than it does on a bunch of creatures that you have to avoid that all share common traits but you'll see what I mean in just a second. Now, even now, a couple of hours into the game, we don't actually know what we're supposed to be doing at all. You're just going from level to level, chapter to chapter, trying to progress, and that's it. There's no long-term goal to get out of the city or to find your friend who was kidnapped at one point or this or that. At the very least, when Six was kidnapped in the school, you had a purpose. You knew what you were trying to do, and it motivated you to see that through to the end. But you're able to rescue Six after just 10 to 15 minutes of basic gameplay, and then everything's fine. Sure, it does achieve the goal of building the relationship, making you feel more connected to Six. I like it. I think it's well done. I'm just frustrated there isn't a long-term clear goal like there was in the first game of escaping that hellhole. And I get it, you could say that the goal in this game is to escape the city, but they traveled to the city in the course of the game for seemingly no reason when they could have just left immediately upon arriving. And even now, they know what it would take to escape. They just have to leave and go back the way they came, but they don't. Regardless, in the hospital, there's a cool section where there's an x-ray machine and you have to find an item within one of the stuffed animals. And the only way you can find them is by taking the animals through the x-ray machine, scanning them and seeing what has the metallic object inside. It's really cool. And I, I just haven't seen something like this in a game before. I thought it was really cool. It's also really cute. You can run with six behind the x-ray machine. It scans and shows your skeletons. And if you hold hands while having your x-ray done, you actually get an achievement called best friends. It's, it's kind of adorable. 
Now, once you figure out which item has the object that you need, in this case, a key, you're able to take it all the way downstairs where there's an incinerator, throw the object into the incinerator, light it up, and then get the key after everything else is burned up. When we were streaming this, somebody in chat said they didn't like this part because they didn't know that they had to take it to the incinerator. They just kept trying to throw it off of objects to break it apart or trying to get six to grab it and then they would tear it open, uh, kind of like tug of war type of thing. But I'm actually a little more forgiving with this. You see, I think it's very, very likely that most players will have explored the rest of this level at this point, probably discovering the basement. So I think it's fair to say that you could put two and two together, realizing you need to drag this thing down to the basement where there seems to be an incinerator. Use it there. It'll burn it up. Even with that having been said, it did take me a minute in order to figure this out and put two and two together. But still, I think it's probably fair. Once you have the key, you push into the locked room on the right side of this larger area. You find a bunch of prosthetics and what seem to be mannequin-like creations of patients using a bunch of individualized pieces. There are torsos strapped to tables, and they all seem to be inanimate until you try to pull this box out from behind a series of what appeared to be bunk beds, at which point one of the bodies that's on a table has its arm dislocate and separate at the elbow, crawling on the floor, chasing you straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, I felt like I could read into a lot of the stuff that happened in the first game, clear meaning and similes that were being drawn, partially, again, because the imagery was very precise and also because I think it was more straightforward and there was actual intention behind it. In this case, there's just a lot of surrealist stuff that has no explanation at all. Disembodied hands chasing you, it's a cool horror trope, but it's nothing that makes me think. It doesn't make me question what's going on in this world or what they're trying to say, what the broader idea and mention is behind it. it just seems random. And this is more broadly my point with these really mystical and bizarro worlds that are created for something like Little Nightmares or anything Hideo Kojima does is that if you're trying to communicate a message, which is what art is about doing at its most basal form, if it's not communicated and people don't receive the message, what's the point of doing it? You know, if you're trying to make a point about income inequality or about starvation or child abuse or whatever it may be, but people encounter and experience your artwork and are left thinking, no, there was no point to that. That was just random horror stuff. Or no, it was just kind of cool, random, kind of generic tropes. You didn't achieve your goal. You didn't succeed. So I would consider it a failure. If you didn't succeed, you failed. I mean, obviously that brings up the question whether or not there actually was a goal, whether or not there actually was a message that was being attempted at, at being communicated. 
In the case of the first game, I think there's a lot of clear things that are trying to be communicated. In the case of the second game, it really seems as though this was just a sequel because the first game did well and they were trying to sell more copies. So they went even bigger and crazier than they did the first time, even though the first time they had a reason for choosing what they did. All told, I don't know what the overarching message and theme is supposed to be in Little Nightmares 2, if there even is one. I really don't know if there is. And that to me is a strike against it. Because if there isn't, the fact that I think there is, is an issue because I'm gonna waste a lot of brain cells trying to put it together when it's just not there. And if there is a message trying to be communicated on the part of the developers, I have no idea what it is. And that's also a problem. So either way, something's wrong. But for now, let's just turn off our brains and work our way through the levels. Even though there's no long-term goal, we'll just keep pushing on through the levels, trying to make progress. Even though we don't really know what form that takes, we'll just keep going through the motions. The rest of the hospital has a bunch of other small puzzles where you're running away from hands that chase you. And then also this cool sequence where there are these mannequin dummy-like creatures that are frozen whenever light hits them. I forget what it was. Was it Doctor Who that did this with the like crazy statue angel things? I think it, I think that's what it was. It was some TV show like that where there were these gigantic creatures and, and statues that would only move when they were in the dark. But if you looked at them, I think it was looking, I don't think it was light, but if you looked at them, they would freeze. In the case of Little Nightmares 2, it's a flashlight and light, and it's actually pretty cool because you have to run through hordes of them and you can freeze them with the flashlight. But of course, because of how flashlights work, you can only freeze the people that you point it to with the right stick. So you have to run into creatures that are not frozen while freezing the people behind you. And then you have to flip the switch and flip it around, freezing the people in front of you as you run towards them while the people behind you catch up and chase you down. It's pretty cool. I actually really like this sequence. I thought it was interesting. I'll also say once again, hallways in this game just suck. I don't know what it is. They just try so hard to make them stand out or interesting. And in this case, you have to run through this gigantic hallway filled with these creatures, and it's an absolute nightmare. You have to run on a very tight, specific track, and if you deviate even a little, you're gonna get grabbed and forced to reload. Eventually, you find both of the small electrical components you need to complete the circuit to break into an elevator to make your way higher up in the level. And after you do so, you push your way through into an operation room where you can see what is effectively the main boss of this area, even though he's coming pretty late. It's this gigantic fat surgeon that works from the ceiling. I mean, I guess it's fair this hasn't been used yet in the franchise. Everybody else has walked on the floor, so having a guy that walks on the ceiling is unique. But I don't know, there's nothing really unique about him or interesting. He's just kind of bland. I don't know, he seems a little phoned in. I just don't think he's that interesting a villain. We do get a chance to work our way through a morgue, which is of course a horror game staple, which I thought was kind of cool, especially the point where you have to open up the tray where they store the bodies, climb in with a dead body, and then Six pushes the tray back through so you can come out the other side. Thought that was kind of cool and 
something I haven't seen in many horror games, which I guess is saying something because there's been a lot of them. But as far as the rest of this level is concerned, it's pretty par for the course. It's running through, finding keys to open doors, distracting the boss while you run around him, finding another key to open another door. There just isn't anything unique. The one exception is the final bit with this boss, which actually is one of the most memorable moments of this entire game for me. Everything leading up to this has been really lackluster, which is unfortunate because the way this boss goes is one of the coolest in either of these games. It just makes me wish that the boss had had more time to build and that you really hated the boss before this happened because it's one of the most satisfying FUs to a villain that probably any game has ever seen. And it's just kind of wasted on this guy. Like he's not good enough for this. What I'm talking about is that he starts chasing you through rows and rows of bunk beds housing patients. He knocks all of them over because of course he climbs on the ceiling for some reason. And eventually you push yourself all the way through towards a crematorium. I'm sure you can figure out where this is going. You have to run right up to it and climb inside, landing underneath the tray, climb back underneath the bed inside the crematorium, wading your way through the ash as he feels around trying to grab you, and then you sneak out through the bottom. Once you do so, Six, in her usual badass style, closes the door, slamming it shut, and then you jump up, pulling the lever, starting the crematorium. There is a significant amount of black smoke that comes out and if you look six is even warming her hands on the blaze that comes out the bottom side as he is turned into ash which is just just so awesome now i actually tried waiting back to see if eventually the door would swing open and you could see like a gigantic pile of ash or a collectible in there if you went back inside after the cremation was done but nothing happens after all cremations take like four to six hours usually i think it's been a while since i watched that video from uh ask a mortician she's great by the way youtube ask a mortician she's wonderful very interesting. But the point is there's nothing here. So you move along your merry way after you receive the PlayStation achievement hospitalized. Silver trophy. Bravo. Once you're out of the hospital, you push into a large apartment building complex. It's here that you'll go through lots of levels that are residential. It's a collapsing apartment building. There's an elevator. There's all sorts of characters that are sort of disgusting, I think is the word. There's some really cool puzzles here, especially the puzzle with the elevator that took me longer to solve than I would like to admit. But once I put it together, it was really satisfying. And I think that's the point of puzzles. If you're going to do them and have them in your game, the solution should at least make you feel proud and not like you just went through the motions of ticking off boxes and doing what the developer was walking you through to do. In this case, they actually leave it up to you and you have to figure it out. We then have a sequence where we're climbing on rooftops and fire escapes. It's really beautiful and it shows us a wider view of the city itself. Then we have another notable moment with the television set. Mono approaches it, puts his hand on it, and is warped inside, trying to reach the hallway and specifically the door at the end of the hallway that opened the game and his dream. Whereas last time, Six kept pulling you out of the dream every time you got close to the door, this time she lets you go all the way to the door and see what's on the other side, which is 
a large, very tall, lanky man wearing a hat and a suit, sitting on a chair, just doing nothing. He stands up as the camera gets closer, and then you're warped back out of the TV. This man is affectionately known in the lore communities of Little Nightmares as Thin Man. So I will call him Thin Man from now on. Once you're out of the TV, everything seems fine and calm, but soon after, Thin Man jumps out of the TV and begins chasing Mono. You're able to escape mostly but not before Six is captured by Thin Man, leaving a small ghostly remnant of her. But before you can reach the ghostly remnant, she dissolves. Awesome, we have a long-term goal now. We did it. We're gonna try to save Six, bring her home, best friends forever, let's go. You run back into the room you were in before, find the TV and push yourself through, at which point you aren't just taken to the hallway that you were before, you're teleported all the way through. You shoot out the other end of another television landing on a small mattress inside a collapsing building. And this establishes the idea that you can use televisions to teleport between two locations. And this is gonna be pretty much the central theme of the gameplay for the rest of the title. There's a few puzzles in the upcoming sections that you will navigate alone, because after all, Six has been kidnapped, so now it's just you, where you have to move TVs into certain locations, teleport through them in order to cross large chasms or get around difficult to navigate objects. It's interesting, but it's not as cool as I think they intended it to be. It's just not. In fact, there's a lot of backtracking, which leads to padding of gameplay time, where you have an initial TV here that you can see, okay, I'm going to go through that one, but I've got to teleport out a different one. So you continue on the level, find that TV. You usually have to set it up in some way by pulling on a lever, which brings the rope over and drags it higher. And then you have to run all the way back to that initial TV, jump through it where you're teleported out of the other one. It's just built to pad gameplay time, and I just don't really like it. It gets old after the first two or three times you do it. But we go through a bunch of levels, eventually finding an old lady that is captivated by her television set. Everything else in her world is falling apart, but she can't help but stare at this set-top television. And this is the other gameplay element that they're going to be using paired with the televisions. Again, the idea that these TVs are so prevalent in this world and they've very likely caused the destruction of the city itself, which is why we saw them floating in the water during the opening section of the game. All of these NPCs that you encounter in the world are obsessed with the television and have to stare at it if it comes on. Again, I could point that it's a commentary on our culture and the obsession with entertainment and media, the inability to look elsewhere even if the rest of your world is falling down around you. Or maybe it's just monsters that like TV. Who can say? But regardless, there's some cool puzzling and platforming that you get to do with these, where you have to turn off the TV to get the character to chase you, and then you turn on the TV to distract her while you go back to the other TV. Again, it's tedious and forces you to backtrack a lot, but at the very least, it's interesting and makes you think creatively. 
And we go through a lot of levels like this. All sorts of different apartment buildings, distracting enemies with TVs, teleporting between them, all trying to work our way closer and closer to the central tower, which we can only infer is where Six is being held by the Thin Man. It's all very samey and is probably the weakest part of the entire game. One, because you're going through it alone when Six really did add a lot to the gameplay experience, and two, because it's just a lot of the same, over and over and over again. We eventually find a set box TV inside of a TV shop, at least it appears to be one. You distract a couple of enemies to free up a TV that you can teleport from, then you teleport through the TV into the shop, but doing so breaks it. This infuriates the residents who were just catching up on the Gilmore Girls, and so they begin breaking through the windows and chasing you through the store. This serves as effectively the punctuation to this sequence. One last chase before we get to the finale. We find another TV and we can see Six pounding on the glass from the other side. We grab her hands and try to pull her through it just like she did us while we were in the hallway. But right before we can get her out, Thin Man reaches up, grabs her and pulls her back in. And then we see his hands and he breaks his way through the TV. He then begins to chase us as we navigate through this apartment building. And he does a good job chasing us all the way through the building onto what seems to be a broken down train system that has long since stopped working. And we only escape him once we disengage the train cars separating us, for some reason, beyond his reach. But Mono sees a ghostly version of Six, which leads him up to a ladder, which leads Mono to the street level of the city right in front of the large tower where she's being held. But before you can feel too calm, you see the thin man in front of you. Believing their journey's at an end, Mono takes his hat off and stares Thin Man directly in the face. As Thin Man approaches, Mono does the unthinkable and resists. Somehow, he's able to disintegrate Thin Man and defeat him. He then warps all the way to the tower, way off in the distance, and runs inside to save his friend. The first thing you see is the hallway from the beginning of the game that's been haunting you this entire time. After you get to the end of it, you open the door and it leads to a very surreal interior of the tower. This section is just a lot of strange puzzles and bizarro sequences where you have to navigate using different hints, sounds, and visual cues. There are, of course, hints and things that you can use to figure out which door you need to go through and when in order to navigate your way to the top of the tower. But I'm going to be honest, the overwhelming majority of these are just going to be trial and error. If you were with us on stream when we were playing through this section, you'll know that a lot of this was just trying multiple doors until we got one that worked or going back through this one twice and then this one twice and then that one three times. If we did that one two times again and then did that one once, wouldn't work and we'd have to start over. Frankly, it reminded me of the South Park Stick of Truth Forest. I know this is a very obscure reference, but it's because I just recently replayed that game. In order to navigate those forests, you have to go through those forests in specific orders. If you want to go to Canada, you have to travel up out of the four directions four times in a row. If you want to go to the secret forest where all of the Christmas creatures who worship Satan are held, you have to go right, up, right, down, and then right. If you go in any other direction at any point in that process, you have to restart 
that sequence in order to reach them. It's not quite as bad in this game as it was there. There are actual cues and like hints as to where you should go and why you should go there. Certain sounds when you walk in front of certain doors, things like that. But for the most part, I think most players are just gonna guess until they make progress and call it good. Eventually you find one singular door at the end of a hallway where all of the lights have gone out. Inside are a few paintings and a bunch of toys. All of the paintings have their faces scratched out, which should be a callback to the housing where Six was being held before, where she drew all of these pictures of humanoid creatures and people, but with their faces scratched out. And the music box in the center of the room should give you a pretty good indication that you're in the right place. You approach the music box, but before you reach it, you see what's become of Six. Her arms are misshapen. She's grown to an incredible size in just a very short period of time. And she's taken on the appearance of a monster, much less of a little girl. She's infatuated with this music box. She can't look elsewhere. She can't focus on anything else. And she even tries to share it with you, playing it and its haunting melody trying to tempt you in. But upon the realization that it's only keeping Six in this hell and it's not actually giving her the escape that she thinks it is, Mono decides there's only one solution, and that's to destroy the music box once and for all. What she thought was the solution to her problems is actually the cause of it. Furious that you would try and destroy her music box, Six begins chasing you through this tower. It's a frantic chase and one that's actually pretty visually impressive. You then end up in this central room where there are two portals either side, much like the doorways you just navigated to get to Six in the first place. In order to get to the box to smash it further, you have to one, set the axe up close to her, then distract her and pull her closer to the doorway so that she comes and leaves the box open, and then you have to teleport to the correct door, swinging around grabbing the axe to smash the music box before she can get back. This is probably the most annoying section of the game. I've said before that other sections were the worst of the game and I disliked them the most in the game. I don't necessarily dislike this section because it seems fair in a weird way that this would be very difficult to get this monstrosity away from this thing she treasures so closely. I mean, if I told you you had to steal the ring from Gollum while he's at peak form, it would be difficult. And I think the gameplay in action of that difficulty would be fair. In this case, the version of the difficulty is just kind of annoying. Instead of getting whacked, taking some damage and resetting, trying to figure out a new angle to go in at, it just fully kills you. Any single touch from six will kill Mono, forcing a reload and a restart of the setup and everything else. So it's just more tedious than I think it needed to be. And it's also made all the worse that after you smash it this next time, you're teleported once again to another even more broken version of this room within Six's mind with multiple doors, in this case four, two that are paired to each other. And then you have to navigate this level to do the same thing that you just did which was already tedious, but now there are four doors and she's grown even angrier. Her moveset is even more erratic, chaotic, and violent. It's just even worse. But you smash it again, destroying this reality even further. You come to seeing Six cradling the music box one last time. There are bizarre biological morbid growths on all of the walls. Everything seems to be collapsing in on itself 
and six seems devastated. This one last time, as you smash the box once and for all, she's transformed fully back into herself. Having destroyed the thing that gave her her one escape out of this reality, she's back to the little girl that she was whether she wants it or not. And I think this is an important thing to keep in mind in the coming section, because the idea that she was happy, blissfully ignorant of her actual reality and happy just living with this music box, I think is very, very important to remember. I don't think she actually wanted to be released which is why she guarded the music box so, so carefully. And I don't think there's evidence to say that once she snaps out of this reality, once the music box is destroyed, that she's like, oh, thank you for releasing me. I wasn't in my right mind. I don't think there's evidence of that. She doesn't show appreciation really when she's released by mono. All it would have taken to show this would be a simple hug or perhaps Six going up to Mono and holding his hand as they had so many times throughout the story leading up to this point in order to demonstrate that she forgave him or was thankful for him, even at the very least. But no, she sprints past Mono, running well beyond him to try and escape the building that's collapsing instead of trying to help him or showing appreciation or care. I don't think she wanted to be released, and I think she's even upset that Mono saved her. Perhaps this world that she was in, even though it was distorted, fake, a lie, and also miserable, distorted and contorted in all sorts of bizarre ways, perhaps that was better than this actual world that she finds herself in now that she's been removed from that fake reality. It would make sense because it would pair with this entire concept we've had for this whole game of a distorted reality, of escaping a current reality into another one by teleporting through the television, through media. I think it all works together. But regardless, the two push their way through the building trying to escape the coming collapse, eventually reaching a long skinny bridge that also begins to collapse. Six has made her way past it and waits for Mono to make one last leap across. Upon making the leap, Six catches Mono, but after a moment, she drops him and leaves alone. The camera pans down slowly and we see Mono navigating a treacherous, hellish reality. Surrounded by eyes and this miserable new reality that he finds himself within, there's a singular chair at the top of a precipice. Mono climbs up it, takes in his new world and reality, begins crying, and collapses on the chair, devastated. Forced to resign himself to his new torturous fate, he simply sits down. And as the coming moments go by, we see a slow montage as he grows older and older, sitting in this chair all alone. Eventually, he takes the form of an adult man, slender, wearing a suit and a hat. We know this man. We know him as Thin Man. Once this is revealed, the camera slowly zooms out. We see the door and the hallway from the opening of the game, and the door slowly closes as the camera continues to zoom out slowly, and we fade to black. Also, if you encountered all of the ghostly children and hugged them all over the course of the game, a post credit scene will show Six encountering a shadow version of herself, the same one that helped Mono 
which gestures to a pamphlet on the floor advertising what seems to be the maw or the ship from the first game. And then Six's stomach growls with hunger, leading into what was the first game's events. Now, if you're wondering what the hell all of that means, you're not alone. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and reading Reddit posts and theories online, trying to figure out what the hell all of this means, because it's very convoluted. To begin, there's a few clear and concise things we do know for a fact, and that is, for one, that Little Nightmares 2 takes place before the first game. It's a prequel. Two, Thin Man is mono in an adult form with time travel capabilities. He's come back in time to see himself as a child, etc., etc., and that Mono isn't actually the hero we were hoping she was. You see, when we were discussing the first game, we said time and time again that it really did appear as though Six was not the kind loving character that you wanted her to be, that she was actually just desperate, wanting to satiate her hunger in whatever way she saw fit. In that way, she's a lot like all of us, we just don't admit that to ourselves. And in the case of Little Nightmares 2, that's just reaffirmed. She is cutthroat, vindictive, and in some cases, I think downright evil. In multiple cases, Mono is just doing what it takes to survive, to get through the level, to get away from the monster and make it through. In the case of Six, it's a lot more vindictive than that. Locking the big guy in the crematorium or chasing all of these guys down and making sure they die instead of just uh, trapping them and moving on or smashing the little kid's head with her bare hands instead of the hammer or letting Mono do it. She took a much more aggressive personal route. All these little things that stack up and make it appear that she's much more violent than she would be otherwise. But that being said, why did she betray Mono at the very end of the game? Why did she wait back, catch him, only to drop him? This is one where there are by far the most theories online with regards to. Many people disagree on why exactly this happened. Some people take the simplified route, as I discussed earlier, that Mono simply didn't want to be released from this illusion, from this dream realm, because Ignorance is bliss. She didn't have to live in this disgusting, falling apart world with hunger and desperation. It was a distorted reality with her music box, but at the very least, it was her reality. And she could control it to a certain extent. And she was, in a bizarre way, happy there. And so, being angry with Mono that he saved her out of this, she decided that she was going to betray him as a payback effectively. I mean, we know she's vindictive. It makes sense that she would be vindictive towards him for doing something she didn't want him to do. Not to say it's right, but it makes sense with what we know about her character. The other theory that some people bring up is that when she caught Mono, which is evidence in and of itself that she wasn't necessarily intending on betraying him up until that moment that she let go. Another theory is that because she held back to catch him on the jump instead of just leaving immediately, that's at least indicative that she didn't intend on letting him fall or abandoning him until she grabbed his hand and looked in his eyes. And at that point, she realized he was actually Thin Man, and in that moment decided to drop him, trying to let him die, kill him, whatever, so that Thin Man couldn't chase her further, 
because she felt betrayed, realizing that Mono was actually Thin Man, the man that trapped her and did all of this to her, and that Mono isn't actually the hero. That's an interesting theory. It's a little tougher to justify. For one, there's the obvious mechanistic issue of Thin Man being an old man. A man. And we can see just visually how different Mono and the Thin Man at full maturity are. So I think it's harder to say that she would look at him in that moment and all of a sudden realize that was the Thin Man. When she'd been captured by the Thin Man, would have had plenty of time to look at the Thin Man and realize that, oh crap, that's Mono. Oh shit. It doesn't make sense that she only just had that realization at the last second. What seems more likely to me with all of this is one, that Mono stayed back simply because it led to a more dramatic moment where Mono was betrayed by Six. I think effectively, based on what they were trying to do, Six was going to betray Mono no matter what, but decided to have one last look and then release him. Or the developers just didn't have a clear answer to this. I mean, again, this is the issue with this mysterious writing is that it's very possible the extent of this justification was, I mean, it would be really spooky and crazy if we just had Six like totally betray Mono at the very end. Like she grabs his hand after he jumps across this bridge about to save him and then just lets him fall. That'd be crazy cool, wouldn't it? And then that's the extent of it. I hope that's not the case. I hope there's a lot more justification to this. And based on some of the fan theories that are out there, some of the DLC, the comics, all of that, there are reasons to believe that there's more to this than just a simple one-line explanation. But there's so many conflicting things that make it kind of tough to judge what actually happened here. It would make sense that Six decided to betray Mono because she was pissed that he took her out of this dream realm that she was happy in, which is why she blasts past him, doesn't hold his hand as they run out and escape, doesn't seem to have any consideration for him as they're escaping and jumping across the bridge. It would make sense. The other cool element that I would like to consider is that Thin Man isn't actually a villain in all of this, which I think is kind of cool. You see, Thin Man wasn't trying to attack Mono all of those times when he captured Six and then when he kept pursuing Mono. I think what makes the most sense is that he was trying to get a hold of himself, the young version of himself, to warn him that Six was going to betray him as a child, causing this reality to occur. He was trying to help young Mono, but because Mono didn't know any better and thought he was just another scary adult, he kept running away. And I like this idea that he's not actually a bad guy because it fits with the visual aesthetic of everything too. Thin Man is one of the very few characters we see in this series, except for perhaps the Lady of the Maw, who's put together and isn't a distorted, disgusting wreck of a humanoid being. He's put together. He's wearing a suit. He's dressed nice. And to some extent, he's even more normal than the Lady of the Maw because the Lady has to wear a mask in order to feel normal. And she has all the mirrors shattered around her because she can't stand to look at herself. But in the case of Thin Man, he seems sad. He seems like he's trying to warn the young version of himself, but he's not doing it because he's 
vindictive or evil. He's doing it because he's trying to help the younger version of himself and perhaps change this reality around. It's interesting. But we could keep going for hours and hours. There's tons of fan theories, and I'm sure you've got your own if you've played these games. And perhaps even after just watching this video, having not played the games, you probably have your own theories or opinions on why all of this happened. I want to hear those in the comment section below. I really enjoy these games. I'm excited for the potential of a sequel. If you want me to play through the DLC, and I kind of hope you do because I really enjoy these games, let me know in the comment section below. When I say that, I'm not just making it up. Like, that's how I justify and allot my time. I only have so much time to play on stream and work through these games and make videos on them. So I really do need you to let me know if you want me to make it a priority. All of that being said, I think these games are really good. I enjoy them. They're not very long, which is why I don't think they can justify a crazy high price. But if you get it, like I said, for 20 bucks or free on Game Pass. It is a home run. Again, patreon.com forward slash Luke Stevens. Throw a single buck in the coffer, get videos like these a whole week early, and head over to rhapsodystream.com. Free music for your YouTube videos, for Twitch streams, whatever you want to use them for, you can get them there. But that's it from me. Thank you for watching. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Again, I want to hear your theories down below, really. Let me know. I love all of you more than you could possibly imagine. I'll see you in the next video or the next live stream. Usually we're streaming right after these videos go live. So head to the link below. Give us a follow. I'll probably be live. Say hello. I'd love to see you. Hugs and kisses. You guys are awesome. Bye-bye.